the individuals who were practicing these ancient religions, they were okay with, with their former gods being canonized as saints because they could still worship them. Okay, I'm Sam, this is the Illegitimate Scholar Podcast, the weekly cultural anthropology podcast that makes sense of our senseless world through indigenous and historical examples, academic methods and social science, and perspective not limited by crushing restrictions that come with traditional academia and government schools. Um, yeah, I can't believe I don't have that memorized yet. We've talked about the anthropology of religion a little bit already. I did my one episode 37, the one before this. You're going to want to listen to that. Um, and depending on when you're listening to this, the episode that I did with the good old boys, uh, Bog Beef and Marek, from me in, in the content of, of anthropology of religion. But today we're going to be looking at it from a few angles. I think really what I'm going to concentrate more on is just uh, who I got here with me today, who's my, uh, my best friend and uh, gay lover. This is me coming out right now. Uh, this Higgy right here. Um, so... Hey, you want to introduce yourself and tell as much about your background as as you'd like, because I think that your background a little bit is is relevant to the anthropology of religion. If you'd like to share that. Of course, yeah, you don't have to. I'm yeah. Daniel Higginbotham, a.k.a. Higgy. Um, I grew up in a, a very religious community. Uh, I would say ultra religious community. Um, Let's call it what <laughs> it is, bro. Some might say a cult. Um, some might say a and... cult. That, that's a weird definition. It's a weird definition, but some would call it a cult, and that's relevant. Well, I think you could make the argument that a lot of religions, a lot of religions, and a lot of people have made this argument that a lot of religions are innately um, cults. Uh, religions so, yeah. are large cults, is what they large are. cults. I think in um, a lot of ways. <laughs> well, then how about this? Let's edit this and say I grew up in a medium-sized cult uh, in 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 the Midwest. Um, my parents yeah. actually were a part of a a much smaller, uh, much stronger cult uh, in Northern Ohio when I was even younger. Um, so okay, yeah, I didn't know I that. <laughs> religion was definitely a, a huge part of my upbringing, a huge part of my life, and had a huge impact on um, on who I would later become. For sure, yeah. I was in the Marine Corps with with uh, Sam Urban's, where we became gay lovers. For this entire series, like, like the last one, the context of religion is going to be analyzed through academic, indigenous, and historical understanding of religion. So it's not from the normal perspective of religion. And I've been releasing shorts, just clips of this podcast. I'm getting a lot of engagement because people are, are misunderstanding what I'm saying. And then they're arguing in the comments and they're assuming a lot of things about what I'm saying, which is fine because it increases my engagement. And I think it's funny and it still is getting people to my content, my long form content, which is great. Oh, you know what I wanted to start with? I want to start with these definitions of religion. So Emil Durkheim, this is an anthropologist, don't really need to know his name. Religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community called a church, all those who adhere to them. So in that definition, this is a unified system. And by unified, it's like together. It's a unified system rather than a like disjointed system of beliefs and practices. So these are unified as in they are shared between people. And remember, shared is a key concept of culture. Culture has to be shared. It's not individual. Beliefs and practices. These are things that people practice, things that they do in their daily life, uh, rituals, things like that, you know, praying and beliefs. These are these are core values, core beliefs that you have relative to sacred things and sacred things are these things that are set apart and forgiven, forbidden, rather, as Emil Durkheim says, things set apart and forbidden 
So beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community, again, unified, called a church, all those who adhere to them. So, so things set apart and forgiven. So these are things that you're not allowed to do, things that you shouldn't do, things that are considered what we would call an anthropology taboo, which I think comes from Polynesian word tapu, which is things that you're, you're not allowed to do, not allowed to touch objects with bad energy or not even bad energy, but just energy. Um, like, and it could even be an individual, like the Incan king, a normal person couldn't touch the Incan king. I think there was, that was a capital crime. Um, I could be misremembering that, but it's that type of thing. Um, you got anything to say on that, Higgy, or you want me to read the other two? Continue. Yeah. Clifford Geertz's definition of religion. Religion is a system of symbols, and symbols are a lot of things. We're going to get more into symbols. But uh, symbols is, is anything that's a non-literal representation of something. So a flag, um, you know, a U.S. flag, a pride flag, a symbol like, you know, a Nazi swastika or a, uh, a dove is a symbol of peace. But it, it's a little bit there's there's more than that. Examples that you might not think of as uh, as being symbolic, but in, in a certain way, things like metaphor and metaphor is so important to culture in general, but also religion that metaphors are like written symbols because they're representing something that's not literal. Um, they're representing words, but the words literal meaning are not, is not the true meaning behind it. Um, just like the stripes on the flag only mean something through shared culture, which acts to establish powerful, pervasive, and long, long lasting moods and motivation. So powerful, pervasive, so powerful, big, powerful, that's its own definition. Um, if you need me to describe powerful to you, go listen to a different podcast. Per <laughs> pervasive, which is just like stretched out through everything and long lasting. So these are long lasting. And to me, I perceive long lasting as meaning generational rather than in one human lifespan based on the context. Moods and motivation. So how you feel about things, what motivates you in men by formulating conceptions of a general order of existence. And I love I love this line conceptions of a general order of existence because conception of a general order of existence, just it, it's a really good way to me of saying how you interact with the world and what the nature of reality is. So conceptions of a general order of existence is conceptions. So how you conceive of things of a general order of existence. So it's not a specific order of existence. It's a general order of existence. This deals with the big questions, the macro level, uh, which is also the content that I like to deal with. It's not the same thing. I'm not God. I would not say that I'm God, to be clear, um, because I have respect for that. So yeah, in clothing those conceptions which with such an aura of factuality that the moods and motivations seem uniquely realistic. And that to me is also a key. This is probably my favorite definition of, of them, but they all serve a purpose. And one of them being that you can't really define religion perfectly. Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. An institution consisting of cultural patterned into, oh, that, sorry, reading the wrong one. Yeah, an aura of factuality that moods and motivations seem uniquely realistic. So an aura, an aura of factuality. In the West, we generally think of an aura of factuality as meaning something that's been proven scientifically. That's the way that we view facts in the world. And that, that is one way to do it. 
Um, but again, those are those are arguments in, in a lot of cases, in a lot of contexts. But an aura of factuality that the moods and motivations seem uniquely realistic. So this is something that feels real to the uh, to the human mind. So th this is this gets out at something that I think is key, which is that there is an element in humankind in human nature that is inherently religious. And to me, this is my opinion, but I believe that you are going to worship something. You will have religion, whether you view it as that or not. And if you define religion in a certain way, then you'll view yourself as not having it, even though you might have a religious devotion to something like your ideology that would be considered secular by contemporary definitions, but an aura of factuality that the moods and motivations seem uniquely realistic. These are facts about the universe. They might not be verifiable, but they are accepted in the mind as facts. That's the aura of factuality. And that's required. And this is when, you know, one example of this, and I'm going to do more on this later, but with something like wokeism, I would say that someone coming out and saying human rights exist, racism exists, these are facts. And I wouldn't argue that like human rights do exist. Racism does exist. But when you're saying this is facts, this is a facts, there's an aura of factuality here, but you're tying it with something like that. What's happening is that the aura of factuality is being applied not only to the idea that racism does exist, which racism as an ethereal concept is, is in a lot of ways a supernatural type thing. So when this word racism, which is also a uh, social construct, the idea of racism, when you frame that in an idea of factuality, an aura of factuality, then it doesn't just become that racism does exist, which I think most of us can agree it does exist. Your specific conception of racism and how it plays out and how you should solve it is what comes into an aura of factuality. And that's where the problems come from. Because when you're defining, and when anybody, not just people calling out racism, but any any religious uh, beliefs that, that interact with others and, and contradict them, then there are people who believe in facts. There are people who believe these things are facts, that there's an aura of factuality about them that they're not willing to give up. They have a religious, I would call this a religious devotion to these ideas, whether or not they are consciously or religious or not, a religious thing or not. Um, but that, that's what it is, an aura of factuality. Like for something to be religious, you have to be, be you have to believe it you be, you have to believe it as a fact, even though it's it might not be, and it and it's by definition in a lot of cases something that cannot be verified or unverified. Which a lot of the comments that I got were telling me that like atheism isn't a religion. I know there's not a god because of the evidence, but I'm like, look, the thing is, you can't prove God exists. You can't prove God doesn't exist. You can't prove a negative. So there's no. It's it's based on faith. It's based on the same root. Whether you're arguing for the definite. Um, existence of God or for your arguing or if you're arguing for the definite non-existence of God. Both of those are religious and it's okay that they can't be verified because that's what makes them in this special spot. But you will worship something and it will be chosen for you if you don't pick it yourself. Last one, quick one, Melford Spiro's definition. Religion is an institution consisting of cultural patterned interaction with culturally postulated superhuman beings. And I like this definition because culturally patterned it's an interaction, that's just culture. That's just any shared interaction. And culturally patterned means 
shared interaction and the human social constructs. So the ways that humans, this isn't innate, this isn't like your, your nature as a human. It is, it's a manifestation of your nature as a human, but it is not your nature as a human in the sense that it is you providing for your family, about trying to get food, about avoiding death, things like this that are human animal nature. Um, it's culturally patterned, which means it's culture. It's shared between people with culturally postulated superhuman beings. So culturally patterned interaction is the most broad you could possibly go in cultural anthropology or culture in general, because culturally patterned interaction, it covers everything culture. But then this next line with culturally postulated superhuman beings, that's the qualifier. That's what brings it down into a niche. So it's the interaction of culture with the supernatural. That is Melford Spiro's definition. And these are three definitions I like. They're not the only definitions, but they're three good ones that taken together, these tell a story. Um, and these are all shared. They're all about orders of existence, about ways, excuse me, ways that human beings interact with each other and the world. And they are uh, culturally patterned, shared, not innate. And they have a lot to do with your environment, whether that be human or physical or otherwise. Um, so yeah, what do you have to say about that? That's a lot, you know, and, and I think these, these are three really, uh, really good definitions. If you take any one of them all, all by themselves, you know, I, I don't think that they're, they're a great definition, right? But I, I think, I think kind of meshing the three together, uh, which is a point you made, uh, I think in the last episode, episode 37, um, where you talk about, Hey, you know, religion isn't a thing, right? Because any one of these definitions by themselves, because they are definitions, uh, as soon as you define the word, um, it, it stops meaning anything. The Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Um, you said my catchphrase, not my I catchphrase. Did. That belongs to Lao Tzu and the way. I'm sorry, <laughs> that was sacrilege. Of course. But you do use it a lot. Um, and and, and I, I do really I'm like it. I'm borrowing you know, it as a catchphrase. <laughs> You talk about the supernatural um, in the in Spyros, I believe. Spiro, Spyro. How do you say it? Spyros. Spyros. Spyros definition. <laughs> well, that's how you say it, right? So, uh, Spyros definition talking about the supernatural or superhumans. Um, you know, supernatural. I, I think means something now culturally that that it wouldn't have meant, let's say, a hundred years ago, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred years ago. Um, I, I feel like it was used in a way at that time to to explain things that were beyond human understanding at the time right yeah um and i think that's interesting now the scientific you know, entered into that realm that's where the definition of religion comes from of course yes. right now but there's still things now that are beyond science but we don't admit it right now i think right. in the same way that they would have then so i think supernatural still exists in that older definition of things that are beyond understanding. If you go back to, let's say, the uh, the mid 19th century, um, you know, we didn't really understand anything smaller than the cell, right? Um, and, and, and anything beyond that, we just said it didn't exist. We didn't say that it was supernatural. But I, I think if you were looking at it um, and using the word in its older definition, you could have definitely said that it was supernatural. Um, and, and you talked about the Clifford definition uh, and you said, uh, let me go back to my notes here. Uh, you were talking about uh, the aura of factuality, right? Now, the way that, the way you and I probably look at that and the way that people 
who are religious about something look at that are going to be very, very different. <coughs> they, they believe that it is fact and they believe that it can be proven. You, you talk about systems of belief um, as being something that, that can't be proven or disproven, but that's no, not I'm, how I'm people... I'm sorry, let me, that let, whole... me, let me stop you for a second. I apologize if I'm interrupting your train of thought. But um, the... So an aura of factuality includes how you evaluate what a fact means. So these are all culturally re related ideas. These are all culturally informed definitions of words. So yes, it's, it's, um, I, I think that ultimately these are things that cannot be proven in a, in like a, a more universal way, but it's, it's hard to even define how to prove something in a universal way. But what, what I'm explaining, it, what I'm saying is that like when somebody tells you that they know that God exists, and I know they believe that, I, I know they do. And I, I personally also believe that God exists or a force, whatever you want to call it. I call it God. Um, I don't think it's the exactly the same as the Christian conception of God necessarily, but it has a lot of elements of that, of course. But the, the definition, the proving it, an aura of factuality means a standard for proving it. So they decide what their standard for proving in it is. And that actually gets exactly at why I think the woke stuff is so religious because they like with the scientific method in the past, they would understand that this is argument and the science changes as new information comes out. That happens all the time. Just these past few months, we saw that the big bang, the, the universe is now 26 billion years old. Finally, like, which is like two or three times as much as it was before. But people still say, trust the science. They have a religious devotion to the truth of that. And, but prior to this, 150 years ago, when they're thinking about the scientific method, they don't talk about truth or fact. They're talking about a theory, even the theory of gravity. And that is because they understand this, that them deciding that they know how to prove something indubitably like it in that's not even the right way to word, use that word proving something without a shadow of a doubt that is that's the realm of man they specifically had science away from man because if you're saying you can prove something without a, a shadow of a doubt you're saying that you can understand the true nature of the universe and that's at the root of of religions is understanding the true nature of of being alive of being human but the true nature of the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. The true nature of the universe, any way that a human being, we are all humans. We are not God. We are not Jesus. We are five. We are not that. Any way that a human can come to you and say, I can prove this, they are wrong. And if they're telling you they really can, then if they're going too far with it, that's when they're getting into false prophet territory where somebody is coming out and they're, and they're saying that they themselves are supernatural. Because this is the realm of the supernatural to prove these things. It's beyond human comprehension. And that's the point. So religious devotion is when you decide that your methods of proving something is true or not true is the factual true way. And that's why I say that it's in, in religions as well as in like stuff that would be called secular, like wokeness. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a great way of breaking it down. Um, and you know, following that that same train of thought right you know the the aura of factuality if you throw a virgin into a volcano and it rains right throwing a virgin into a volcano makes it rain within that worldview right uh if, if you look at 
uh, what happened when the sun-centric solar system was proposed as opposed to the earth-centric um, solar system and, and, and the way that the way that the, the uh, culture at the time responded to that, right? Um, you look at the way that uh, a lot of the uh, Abrahamic religions that, that believe in miracles, right? The way that they prove these miracles or the way that they use these miracles to prove the existence um, of their God within the context that they believe him to exist, right? I, I think mm -hmm. all of that falls under uh, the way you explained that right there, which, which again, was, I, I think, excellent. Yeah, yeah. And, um, okay, so the virgins into volcano things, that actually gets me, as long as you're ready to move on from this particular yeah, topic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the virgins getting thrown into the volcanoes, this is something that is, this is an extreme example of um, things that are outside of, of your control. So I'm actually going to talk about the Carthaginians for a moment, because the Carthaginians are associated with human sacrifice and specifically child sacrifice. And when the Carthaginians were, were getting to the point where Rome was like um, Cartago Delende Est, where they were in the Senate chamber chanting Carthage must die or Carthage must be destroyed. And they were about to launch 10 different armies, one after the other at them. The, the Carthaginians had in the past practiced child sacrifice and it was their own children. And then it shifted into the children of other people. And, you know, they'd find street urchins or whatever that unfortunately people didn't value. They didn't value their life. So they, the Carthaginians would sacrifice those people over time, the custom changed and they were sacrificing effigies and often other children. But when Carthage gets to the point where it's about to be destroyed, um, they start sacrificing children again. And first they start with these other ones and it becomes less of a rare practice. And then they start sacrificing their own children. Sacrifice, when you're sacrificing anything, it could be something small. You could be just giving, giving an offering. These are things that are associated with ritual and often ritual and um, being superstitious about things. These are related to practices that are outside of your control. So there's this thing about baseball magic. This is a famous example in anthropology. And in baseball, there is a lot of superstition and ritual. People have things that they do. They have routines. They walk to the plate a certain way. These are only associated in baseball with the parts of the game that are very hard to control, that have very low rates of control over. Outfielding is a skill position. It doesn't have any of these. Um, pitching is more of a skill position. I think it has less ritual. But out will, outfielding doesn't have any of these, these magic rituals. But... Uh, batting does. Batting has a lot of these rituals because a good, a good batting average is 30% of the time you hit the ball. That's very little control you have over that. The best batters, maybe what, 0. 0.4, 40% of the time, less than half the best batters. So like, this is a, a, a situation that you can't control. Just like, you know, battle, prayer, going into battle, people might pray. You can't control it. Um, anything that you don't have control over, people will pray. It, it, the first element of that is that it gives people strength. If they believe in the value of the prayer of the offering, then it gives them personal strength. But then there's these larger things like these sacrifices that are very public and shared rather than being individual or partly individual, because there's prayer that's individual, there's prayer that's group, all of it, you know, different methods of doing it. But when we get into like with Carthage, number one, most religions in the past were just, there's no way to define religion because religion is pervasive. It, it, it is involved in all these other things. 
People didn't compartmentalize religion until the scientific method. This is a Western idea. So in Carthage, the religion is intertwined with the civic and the economic and everything. And they practice child sacrifice, but they do it very publicly. Now, if you're like, put yourself in the shoes of a Carthaginian villager, you're in modern day Tunisia. It's not modern day Tunisia, but that's where you would have been if it was today. This is where Carthage is. This is a rich colony. You have a long storied history. You're, you're one of the gems of the Mediterranean, which to the known world is exceptional. You, you have great buildings, many of which are hundreds of years old. You live in this exceptional culture that has done great things. You have this enemy of Rome prior to what, like Rome wasn't Rome back then. This is Tom Brady when he's about 28 and he's just getting up there, okay? This is not Tom Brady at 40 years old. This is Rome on the way up, but Carthage is still, they, they are the old man. At the time, you gotta think of what Carthage was. They were this amazing city. And then you're one of these Carthaginian, just a normal citizen. You're a normal citizen. And by the way, the Carthaginian citizens had not been fighting their own wars for hundreds of years. But you're one of these normal citizens and your religious leaders and political leaders, they're getting together. You're noticing that Carthage, we, you lost a couple wars. You know that Carthage was greater in the past and you need some sort of, you don't know what to do. Okay, you're scared probably because there's stories of these Romans, they kill people. When you eventually find out what happens to Carthage, you should be scared. The Carthaginians, they, they were there and you're this Carthaginian citizen and you're looking up at your religious leaders, your political leaders of this great city that you are a part of and you see its decline and you see the past, but you don't have anywhere to go. And you, you, are, you are inside of this whole thing. You're involved with Carthage, you're intertwined with it. Your patronage networks are there. And then your politicians, your leaders, the elites in your country publicly kill their children to sacrifice. They sacrifice their own children, the greatest thing that you could possibly give up. The greatest, in, not in a good way, but greatest in the sense of large. And they kill their own children and you know about it. What kind of shared, uh, the name for this, might be called, this is a very, very anthropological specific term, but anime, which is A-N-O-M-I-E, which is like a sense of community, or maybe it's communitas, one or both of these in specific times. It's one of those, I think there's a small distinction. But you are feeling a sense of community with everyone around you with a crazy thing. And both with the people that are sacrificing their own children and everybody who's seen them sacrifice their own children there's a mental shift in that because think about when you're out, if you're out somewhere, if you've ever been a bouncer or been around people fighting, if you're looking at a crowd, you can feel the energy shift for a fight. You can feel it when it shifts. And even if you don't, even if you've never experienced what I thought of feeling the, the energy shift, this is something that's like subconscious. You know what I'm talking about if you've been in this experience, but regardless, if you're somewhere and you're out hanging out at a bar, having a good time. And then there's a fight near you and people are yelling and fighting and there's blood. That's a vibe shift, bro. That's a real vibe shift. It might ruin your whole night, depending on it. Now let's think about you're there watching robes. There's all this ceremony, these massive buildings. All of these are symbolic. They, they, they show all these things. And your city, which is in decline, which is the gem of the Mediterranean. You think of yourselves as the as the exalted citizens, you might as well be Qing Dynasty Chinese people. You're 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 the top at this time, and Rome is the competitor, but they're they're on the up and up. Okay, they're not there yet, but you're a Carthaginian. You are the greatest civilization on earth, 
and you have this long storied history and you know long ago they sacrificed children and now your elites are up top and they are they are going back to the old ways. What the heck does that do to you? The 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 shared change, like that's a 9-11 times 10. Like the the every everybody would just be doing insane things. It would be a complete mind shift towards we need to put all our resources towards this. Because when you kill your own kids, you're putting everything towards it. That's everything. You are all in. That is a symbol that you are all in. You are past all in. It's insane. I would never do that. I can't think of a situation. I don't even have kids, but like, I'm sorry, I'm talking about sacrificing children. It's not fun, but that's what I have to say. I wanted to paint the picture as much as possible because seriously, think about you in that situation. These are modern humans. They have the same brain as you. The only difference is the culture and they did these things. This is in you deep down, hopefully, but it's in you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, I think that that's a really great point. Um, the story about Carthage, uh, the context you just respond to that in the most like college way possible yeah so the i really like your point about of... con- <laughs> yeah go ahead well, the know, context i'm trying matter. to gas you up as much as i can this is your show um the context of that though i think is is very important because rituals are, are something that i that i think helps societies uh live in accord with and and, and then also reinforce the set of values right or yeah. i mean you know this uh, this all falls underneath the definition of religion. Don't go too religion. much into the rituals because we're going to get into specific definitions of religion, of rituals in later episodes because ritual is very important. But you're, you're landing it. You're on there. Yeah. My only my only reason for bringing this up is that the the context in which the Carthinian the Carthaginians are the Carth. Can you say that for me, please? Carthaginians. The Carthaginians are 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 performing this level of ritual, right? If I'm not mistaken, is their city is under siege and has been under siege for a very long time at this point, right? Um, and there's a there need. was a number of social, but yes, 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 exactly. There's a need to to instill or or to um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for here? There's a need to rally the people around the belief that Carthage is great because they're in decline, right? So yeah. I think that's yeah, yeah. what pushes them to go to the, to these extremes. But these aren't extremes oh, yeah. that you see people um, that, that you see people stooping to, I guess you, you could say, on the norm, right? Yeah. There's, there's a specific set of circumstances that calls for people to need this level of devotion to their religion. And it's when they lose that control, like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You 100% got it because that, that's what this is. They had, remember, they had the child sacrifice like way long ago, centuries ago. They stopped doing it, you know, because they got weak and soft. And honestly, like, if you're doing child sacrifice, you should probably go a little soft. Okay. You should probably chill out on that. So it, it was a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I've been talking about this a lot recently, but human lifespans are they match um, empires and, and civilizations lifespans, they, they atrophy with time, they get these built in things into them where, the, you know, people just get decadent, I, it really is that that people get decadent, because over time, it just gets it, people's lives get better and better. And then you're at a point where your interaction with the world, like, this is what you're talking about, the context, the things that you do, are a response to your specific interaction with the world, whether it be personal, familial, but all of it, it it's all related. 
So when we're born in the 90s and we grow up in, we get a few years of the analog. We're the last ones before it's all digital all the time. Like kids born five, 10 years after us had a very different life than us. I think we were, we were the last ones to get lucky. I would have preferred a few years before, I think, but it was okay. Right. Am I wrong there? No, my perspective. I, I, yeah. I don't think so, so. I think that's a, I think that's a, an opinion that I share with you for sure. So it's the context of, of where we are that always does this. And yes, that's what it is. You're not going to go to the point of child sacrifice until it's real serious. But that's what I mean when we when I say that it's in us. These were modern humans. The point is that they were doing, they had these ideas, they had these crazy cultural ideas that don't make any sense to us. But that's that's the root of understanding history of saying like, okay, so what was the world like where this was the way that you interacted with it? What is the technology like? What is the human interaction like? What what is what is it like? Because for us, like I I just drove my car my my amazing car with a cooled seat my suv 20 minutes down to the closest city where i I just had to do some quick work over there and i drive back in the ac it's 80 degrees outside and but i i was i traveled 15 miles in an afternoon to to just clean like for nothing that's crazy walking 15 like 15 miles would be a day's trip on foot at any other point. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting, I digress. Context matters a lot. Context is everything. Context is absolutely everything. You, you can apply this to even 20 years ago, um, especially when you look at how much we've changed in 20 years. And this is why these long lasting religious things, they're, they're just, it, a lot of this decline of religion in the United States and in the West in general, I, I mean, it, it's hard for something to shift for ideology to shift as fast as technology is shifting we're going up in technology faster than we ever have it's accelerating and our institutions are not built to deal with that religious and government and otherwise um yeah you got anything else not on that no not on that you got anything else in general You talk about the institutions of Cleveland. of religion. You talk about the institutions of religion not being built to keep up with the pace of current technological advancement, right? right. But I, I think an aspect of religion is is a I, I think essentially a vehicle for passing down values <laughs> to the generations that that will come after, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and when the when there's such a big disparity um, between the experiences between the generations, right? I'm not sure if I'm saying this in in a coherent way. Um, then that vehicle has to change, right? Right, and I, right, I think right. In some ways, that that might be responsible for the huge shift that you see. I mean, people are leaving churches and have been what since like the 1950s. I think mm-hmm. religiosity in the United States has really been dropping off, um, and and in the Western world in general. But that might be at least partially responsible for that. Yeah, hundred percent. So. Let me do this. So right now, most of the people are just going to be listening, but I got to watch, right? You see this band? If I needed this to be stiff, I'm going to, I'm going to use this to hit this metal and push it. No, it just, it just bends, right? 
This is very malleable. Okay. Look at this. Mechanical pencil, okay? It broke because I bent it. It wouldn't bend into a shape. All right, good. Comb. Bendable, but stiff and sturdy. You can push, okay? So, thing like religions and any sort of ideologies, they need to be pervasive and long-lasting. They need to be metaphorical and symbolic in the way that they convey information, just like a constitution, by the way, it, it, a different application of this, but this has parallels to constitutions. Religious institutions, they have to be malleable. They have to be, they have to be longer lasting than just, just black and white rules. I mean, they can have black and white rules, but like everybody knows that thou shalt not kill. There are certain cases in all religions that are based in thou not, thou, thou shalt not kill is like the first commandment of the 10 commandments, which is relevant to all the Abrahamic religions. I, I think Islam as well as Judaism and Christianity, but everybody knows Jews and Christians and Muslims are killing people. And there are, there are leaders in those communities, maybe not as much in the U S but in, in other countries of all three of those communities, there are religious leaders of Jews, Christians, and Muslims that are telling people to kill people. So there are ways of getting around this stuff. And, and that's the point. That's why metaphor is so common because metaphor, which is in a lot of ways, symbology in words, metaphor allows them to create a long lasting thing over time. And it's malleable enough because it's metaphor, it can be interpreted and it changes your interpretation of things change with your culture and the way that you interact with the world and the way that you've been taught in the world. So the new generation coming up in a new environment, whether there's new neighbors, whether there's new, um, there's, there's a natural disaster, um, it could be a bad harvest, the religion it, it, to expand itself over time, it has to be malleable, it can't be too strict, but it has to be strict in a certain way, it has to be strict to a point, because if it's too strict, then it'll just break. And if it's not strict enough, then it just, it'll die because it has to have rules. It has to have rules that will perpetuate it over generations. And this is why you often see religions that like, like for example, Sunni and Shia Islam. Shia Islam is mostly practiced in Iran and it, that there's no secret that there's lots of Persian ancient stuff in Shia Islam. So the way that Persians interacted with the world, they, uh, they adopted Islam, but they adopted all this stuff into it. You will also see in a lot of communities in Europe, Catholicism spread out and it adopted all of these polytheistic beliefs that were part of the prior culture into Catholicism to convert people. That was the malleability of Catholicism that allowed it to spread so far because it, it allowed these other religions to join it through saints. And this reduced the, it was a compromise because, you know, monotheism um, of Catholicism, of Christianity, but then the individuals who were practicing these ancient religions, they were okay with, with their former gods being canonized as saints because they could still worship them. And then what, what you see with the rise of Protestantism, and I was talking about this with the good old boys, um, is that Protestantism comes out and it, and it comes around in more industrious nations, essentially, is, is the thing. And maybe that's what happened afterwards. Like maybe that's tied in with, with the creation. But 
tied in with monotheism, the spread of, of Christianity is uh, the, the destruction of Catholic institutions in a lot of Celtic places. Um, and, and that can be viewed as destruction of Catholicism, but really what it was, it was part of this greater drive to centralization because the old languages and the old culture of places like Cornwall, in the context of England, it's places like Cornwall and Wales and Ireland, when they destroy these Catholic institutions, and there were a number of wars between the 16th, 17th, 18th century about this, they were destroying the ancient culture and bringing them into Protestantism, which was for Anglicans, it was tied directly to the state. This was an effort towards centralization in one authority. It was it was part of an era that's known as um, the absolutist era with more absolute rulers uh, across Europe. And yeah, I forget how I got on that. You were talking about the need for religion to be malleable. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think the role that that metaphor has played in allowing religions to be malleable, I, I think, was kind yeah. of the, right. what, what you were trying to say. And, and you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, in, in order for a religion to be functional, in order to have a functional religion, it has to provide some type of pathway for for harmony within society, right? And and that and that has to be culturally informed, and it has to be able to change as the society changes technologically. And and me metaphor is, is a much a much more um, it's a much more effective way to pass down those values in, in a way that can be malleable without losing all of its original meaning, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yes. Which is probably why Christianity has, has, has evolved in so many different ways across so many different cultures in so many different places, right? Right. I mean, it, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of, of story and metaphor contained within the texts that are right. associated with, the, with that religion. And, and there's incredible diversity in this because it's not just mm -hmm. like in America, it, it gets turned into this Irish, uh, well, not necessarily Irish, but it gets turned into this uh, Catholic versus Protestant thing. But Catholic versus Protestant is only part of it. Now, number one, the Mormons are kind of weird. Sometimes they get lumped in with Protestants. I don't believe they're Protestants. I, I barely believe they're Christian. Sorry, Mormons. It's because of a certain a few certain things. But Mormonism is a Christian religion. Um, in their ideology, the red man, the Indian, was a uh, was cursed, was a cursed race. And that's a type of metaphor that has I, I, I might be talking extreme here, but essentially it has it has genocide built into it. Like they, they, they are a cursed race. Like when a race is cursed in your holy book, seems like a good reason to kill them. First Amendment, but they're cursed. They did this to themselves. And there's lots of religions that, that have this where it's like these outsiders, these specific outsiders, these are the bad guys. And, you know, the Crusades, but the Crusades had their own thing of jihad. It's like it's the Crusades were a response to attacks by Islam, not the other way around. But anyway, it's stuff like that. Mormonism. Even Mormonism, more recent. Yeah. Even more recent examples, um, you know, within certain sects of Christianity that that have have done this to a African Americans, right? Or, or I'm sorry, to Africans in general. Um, oh, that was the other part. Is that um, right? Thank you. Um, the uh, for Mormonism. To, before we get into other ones, Mormons didn't let black people into their church until the 1970s. I, I can't speak on the specifics for black people, but black people being inferior 
used to be a canon part of of Mormon religion. It was an explicitly white, and I they, they've always let Polynesians in. A lot of Polynesians are Mormon, but I, I don't understand that. I don't know that. I, I'm sorry. If you're a Mormon listening and you can correct me, please, I would love to hear it. Um, let me know on Discord or whatever. But yeah, that is my understanding that that black people were not allowed into the Mormon church until the 70s. And that, and that is because they are a strictly American religion. And I like it, there is some truth when people to the idea that people say that like black people were um, were like like America did have slavery that did become it wasn't originally, but it did become racially based. And so that was a strictly American idea, not just an American idea, but that was an American idea in the culture. And this was adopted into this syncretic religion which is Mormonism, which is a strictly American culture religion, right? Um, and then Anglicanism, of course, dies. It becomes Episcopalian, but there's still Episcopalian churches in the U.S. And those are from the, um, those are from uh, the Episcopalian church, or Episcopalian church comes from the Anglican church in England. But when we did the revolution, the Anglicans became Episcopalian. But all that did was adopt this class structure that was inherent in England and this state-based religion. And the Episcopalians, as you might imagine, today are descended from these old British, like noble aristocratic families. And Episcopalians are one of the richest religions in the US even today. Is that old money? Not like us poor whites. <laughs> With our dirty feet shopping at Walmart. Yeah. What year are we talking about? Well, the, the Mormons were talking about 19th century was when these ideas were coming about. But like I said, 1974, those ideas, sh like they shifted with the culture. Um, so the Civil Rights Act happens and then the Mormons, it lags a little bit behind because they're responding to the culture, but they, they opened it up to black people. Um, yeah, Higgy, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, great example. And, and you know, even into this century, you know, I mean, there's definitely sects of, of, of Christianity um, who, how do I say this? Uh, there are sects of Christianity even now within the 20th century, within the 21st century, rather, in America, who propagate the idea that, that Africans are cursed by God to be slaves of the other nations for okay. eternity. You know, yeah, I mean, um, th these are ideas that, that definitely still exist um, in, 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 you know, in modern Western religions today. I don't I couldn't name a specific one, but I uh, I know that they do exist. Right. Um, but you can also see this. Let, let's talk about a couple other examples. I did want to talk about the diversity of uh, Christianity today, because what a lot of people don't know is that the first Christian nations um, well, Ethiopia is one, and then there's another, Armenia, Ethiopia and Armenia. And I, I would like to look into both of those more because their their types of Christianity are, you know, they, they kind of get lumped in with Orthodox. I think Coptic is the name for the Ethiopian one. But they're, they are, you know, representative of their, um, of their culture. And and they're representative of, of the, the previous culture they had. And I was talking to Bog Beef and Marbeck. Uh, it's a great episode. It'll be out soon. I'm actually going to drop it on the Patreon, which I'm now going to be starting. Um, you know, it, I'm not going to have anything on the Patreon that you wouldn't otherwise get that I think is good information. You will get some special special treatment, of course. And it'll be like, 
Um, and you'll get stuff early is the thing that that's what it is. I just, you know, I don't want to do ads. I might do ads eventually. I don't know, but, uh, I'm, I want to start the Patreon and, you know, make it a way that I'm not taking away from anybody getting this stuff. Cause I, I ultimately the, the goal is just to, just to have it out there, but bog beef and Marbeck, they're both, you know, they're both Southern Protestants. Me, I'm not, you know, I'm not practicing Catholic, but culturally I'm Catholic, which I'm not going to go into the specifics of, but that's a thing. Orthodoxy has a lot of things related to polytheism as well, just like in the Catholicism. But I guess there's some stuff with it that might be a little bit more literal. But but that's a reflection of them preserving the culture. Um, and the Orthodox would, it, the Orthodox is something that's less malleable, right? So these are, there's there's a spectrum of allowable malleability when we're talking about how much a religion can change and not break. So it just depends on what it comes up against. But Orthodox religion being in the East, that is much East of East Europe is what I'm saying. The Near East, not even the Near East, nearer than the Near East. That's the East. They're culturally different than the West, okay? Um, is like Ukraine, Eastern. Ukraine and East of Ukraine. They have more of a traditionalist religion. So their Orthodox religion is continuing. They're, they they have it. It's, it's not declining. Religion in the West maybe became too malleable ate on too much of the culture. Maybe it wasn't malleable enough, but it does seem like the secular culture took over the religious. They took over their market share quite a bit. And that's when you see the breaking is the religion losing, like, or religion in general, in this case, losing people committed to it. It it's, wasn't malleable enough. And that's when you see things like reformations. And when you see things like schisms is when you can't agree on your worldview. And not being able to agree on a worldview means that you can't agree on these metaphors that are so important. Like Bog Beef was saying this the other day. He was talking about how they were fighting over these metaphorical ecclesiastical ideas. Well, yeah, that's the only thing you should be fighting and dying over because it, it's it's fighting over the nature of reality. It, it's a, in, in a very literal way, although it is metaphorical and symbolic, is that when you're fighting over the metaphors that define you when you're fighting over these these stories that define a civilization and you're fighting over literal gods because back before monotheism their gods were physical they had physical embodiments of their gods and stemming from old older hunter-gatherer ideas they still had these ideas of objects having power and you can even still see that in some catholic churches and, and things like that and, and other religions but that's this old idea of idolatry Craig says logic plays a bigger part in the Western church as opposed to the Eastern, I believe. And, and yeah, and that's, and that's as that comes from the scientific tradition in the West. I assume, I think that the schism was earlier than that. Um, or maybe not because the great schism between the Catholics and the Orthodox was in 1054 or so it was the 11th century. And then after that, there was then the schism of the Orthodoxy of the Orthodox churches from West to East. But those are perfect examples because people interacted with the world in the same way. And then these metaphors, these stories, they fight over these stories because they're everything. They're how you interact with the world. They're how you view the world. They're, they're, they're more than real. They have this aura of factuality and it, it's, it's a real aura of factuality because it's commitment to something that is supernatural. And, and that can be an ideology even, but in this case, it's, it's these ideas that come down that, Look, the difference between monotheism and polytheism is huge. They're associated with certain subsistence patterns, certain ways of living. 
um, these things are, are we're going to talk about a lot of them over the next few weeks. And I'm going to I'm going to get even more evidence, more examples. We're going to be going into a lot of different religions. But these things matter. They, they do. And I've been talking too long. So, Peggy, go ahead. Yes, there's a big difference in, in, in monotheism um, and multi-theism, <laughs> right? Um, Polytheism. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm, I'm messing around, but, uh, you, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, polytheistic cultures, they, they create a God for individual attributes that are important to their society. And, and, and each of these attributes or, or, or these gods has a varying level of, of importance or, or, or um, deference paid to it based on how important that value or, or idea is to their society. In a lot of ways, though, monotheism is just a lumping together of all of the attributes that we consider most important. And, and I think a lot of, of the differences um, in, in, the, in the Western and the Eastern uh, ideas of Christianity, right, um, comes with the different ways that they define God, right, or, or, or the, the different attributes mm-hmm. that they hold to be most important within that. So while there are huge differences in, in the mono and polytheistic cultures, there's also a lot of similarities, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are similarities and there's a spectrum of it because mm-hmm. like with the Hindu God, um, so in, in Hinduism, and, and this is farther on the spectrum. So, so let's just go, let's go mainline Protestantism. Okay. One God, you guys don't have saints, right? Or you're not mainline. You're, you're freaking, you grew up, uh, uh, what is it? What's the word? E evangelical holiness was the word that, right. that they use for the specific. So you grew up evangelical. I grew up sometimes going to Catholic churches. Um, and, but mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants believe, I mean, they believe in the Trinity, which is somewhat polytheistic, but that's, that's, that's all it kind of goes to for mainline Protestants. And then they have the one God, but you go back to Catholicism. And like I was saying, like, you know, I, I grew up with an Irish Catholic mother and she went away from Catholicism later on, but she still was, she had a saint for everything still. And that was, a that is, that has roots. You go way back thousands of years ago in pre-Christian Ireland, which is what this is a symbol of. If you're listening, most of you will be, but this is a, a, a this is a Celtic cross, not the, there's a white supremacist one that's different. This is just the Celtic Celtic cross. And it's a pre-Christian Irish symbol. And that is something that like these, these gods that they would have had, these spiritual beings, they were adopted as saints into the religion. I already talked about this in here, but they were adopted as saints into the religion and then they became saints, but that still retained this ancient religion. And there were still these stories about them. And so they were still these religious stories but there's one God who's greater than them, like how the gods became higher than the Titans in Roman. And I'm sure there's some symbolic significance in that as well. But what it comes down to is that this one God is associated with the politics of um, the politics of centralization of power. So one God's like monotheism starts popping up at like the state level and like late in life, like the chieftain. So these are old methods of viewing um, of viewing the world because, and the reason 
they're not perfect is because it presupposes that human civilization only moves in a straight line, which is not true. But these are still generally pretty true. There's many, many examples based on different types of geography, both human and otherwise, especially today when cultures interact, modern and whatever. But band level, which is like bands are very small. They're like extended family groups. That's a band level. These are a few dozen people. Then you have a tribe. And a tribe is a combination of bands. And these are these have traditions. They have very light traditions, usually associated with hunter-gatherers, maybe some pastoralism. Then after that, you have chiefdom level. And these are institutionalized, codified rules. Think of the Gauls. Um, think of uh, the... So the Gauls, the Celts, these are all chiefdoms. Uh, the, the Germanic people back when the Gauls had been civilized into state society. But these are these are chiefdoms. These are several thousand people. And then there's state level society and state level society is where monotheism comes out. And in the Lusitania, yes, thank you, Doug Dimidome over the Dimsdale Dimidome, Lusitania. The Lusitani or Lusitani, they were a chief level tribe. So these chiefs, this this is where polytheism comes out. Hunter gatherers are strongly associated with animism and totemism. And these are related. Well, totemism a little bit more into the chiefdom stage, but these different stages of society where you're at different levels, band level isn't really a stage. It's, it's really think of it as tribal. Tribal, they got the, um, the animist beliefs. Then after tribal, the chief chiefdom, these are polytheistic beliefs. And these, oh, I'm going to do a whole episode on these, so I'm not going to go too far. I've already talked too much. As always, I digress. State level societies, monotheism. And like, think about that. Animistic, these, this tribe level, they're just hanging out in nature. They're much closer to nature. They are, they are less separated. They are living um, in something like a teepee. These are tribes, like tribes, plains, Indians. They are nomads. They would live in teepees. Hunter-gatherers that were pastoralist nomads. They wouldn't move a lot. Algonquins that lived in New England. They were tribe-level societies. They lived in a, they lived in a different environment. They lived in very simple houses called wigwams. Then you have the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. They lived in a chiefdom level. They had a codified type of force in their religion. I, I'm not super familiar with their religion, but I think that the Haudenosaunee religion was starting to approach monotheism. It had monotheistic elements in it. So these are all reflective. And then Protestantism removing this element of polytheism, which is these saints that are included in Catholicism, that is a shift towards the state. It, it affects the way that you interact with the world. Because if you're a Protestant and you have one God and you don't even have saints that are lesser, the market share towards that one God gets ever higher. So there's no wonder that it's associated with this state level society. There's no wonder that it's associated with the uh, centralization of force in Europe because it, it matches it. It matches it a lot. And that's what we're dealing with today. Oh, in Hinduism, Hinduism, polytheism, multiple gods, that's what you might call it. But really these gods are a bunch of different parts of one God, uh, Krishna, Shivu, she, I forget which one it is. Can someone help me on the comments what the main God is in polythe in, in Hinduism? But really that's a, that's a poly it's a monotheistic religion. And it, we know it's a monotheistic religion because these are Western terms. And 
I think most Hindus will tell you it's a monotheistic religion defined in these terms. But when they're told that it's a polytheistic religion because there are these multiple gods, they just don't get into the specifics of like, oh, yeah, but it's all a piece of one god. And that's probably reflective, and I would have to go into it, of Indian culture being a, this Hindu religion being a syncretic religion. That's, Hindu is a syncretic religion, just like Mormon. I mean, most of them eventually start as that. But it came out of roots of Buddhism, but it included all these elements of ancient Indian culture. So it, it adopted these. It's the same process that happened in Europe. And when you look back at these very primitive, these more primitive, which is to say that they're less complex societies with less complications in their law systems and everything, the, the, um, the similarities between different ones of them are much easier to spot. And, oh, and the last thing, uh, more evidence towards state-level society of the Haudenosaunee, and there they had a great law of peace, this, uh, this, this political system, which functioned, uh, it was somewhat Republican in nature, you could call it, uh, influenced the, the founding documents. Uh, Brahma, Brahma, of course it's Brahma, which is reflective of um, the highest caste being Brahmin, it's, it's reflective of, of roots in Buddhism. Um, so the Haudenosaunee, getting to the state level, their religion is reflective of this, their houses were also much more complicated than um, the Algonquin Native Americans. They, they, were, they were at this state level, or they were at this chiefdom level, approaching state level, kind of, in certain ways, as opposed to this tribe level that was prevalent in New England. Um, Doug Dimidome, Dumb Dibidank, owner of the Dimsdale Dimidome, says that I think there's three main ones. Now, that's interesting. Uh, the Hindus have a trinity as well. Are we going to go to the land of the triune God and, and, and go to our, uh, our Indo-European ans ancestral friends? Because that, that's it as well. I mean, they, they are Indo-European because um, they got that Aryan influence. And there's something there because it's tied to language. Okay, Language is something I'm going to be covering soon. But these Indo-European languages, they, you're, the way that you interact with the world is decided and, and it affects the, your language. But I've been talking too long. I've been ranting. This is what I did yesterday. It's, it's like Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Okay, that is what I would think it is. That's so interesting because that's a trinity. That's so weird. I need to look into this more. This might just become a Anthropology of Religion podcast. I don't think you would run out of material. No. Um, no. Uh, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to be hopping off here in about 20 minutes. I got a meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern. So if you guys have any questions, anything, please ask them in the chat. And now I'm going to let Higgy talk as long as he wants. I only had one thing really that I, that I, I thought of listening to you talk there. Um, you were talking about how religions, uh, as they spread to other cultures, right? You were talking about this with Hinduism and Buddhism specifically. They, they, they often take on elements of that culture and, and become something very different. And I think that you see that in the, um, in the evolution of the evangelical church within the United States, right? It, it, it takes on this, this constantly expanding growth mindset that our culture here in America has that is very, very different from the Orthodox Christian churches of the East and West, right? Yeah, um, and Protestantism and, 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 I mean, already has a lot of that. Exactly, right? But it takes on even more of that, you know, here um, and, and becomes the, the dominant religion within mm -hmm. the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And it, it also, the thing about evangelicals is that it, it's, it has a lot of 
more spiritual personal elements to it, which I can't really explain. I read an ethnography about, um, I, I might have to go back to it. I have it in my, in my thing, an ethnography about uh, evangelicals. Uh, but it makes sense. I, I think the roots are in like, you know, the fricking, the, the snakes and everything of those, uh, the, the, the snake people, Protestants. I don't know. I'm from New England, man. I just got Catholicism up here. Oh, you mean like the, like the snake handling charm? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think we can end it there. We had four people watching and two of them left. So, uh, us, right. All right. So who's ever still here? Thank you for coming. Uh, and I'm going to drop this full episode. I'm going to edit it down a little bit and drop it hopefully tonight. Um, and yeah, check out that Patreon that I'm putting up. I'm going to, I mean, I'm very open to suggestions. So if you're willing to give me money and you don't have to, I don't blame you. You're like, it's okay if you don't want to, but if you do want to give me money, you can kind of tell me what you want to give me money for. I'll probably do it. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I was about to, I was about was to Patreon a or OnlyFans. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's, I just said it like that. That is not this type of show. So I, I didn't make that joke, but yeah, no, it's <laughs> not like that. All right. Thanks a lot for coming. Hey, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and I will Absolutely. talk to you Thanks guys for soon. having me. Love you too, Doug Dimadank. <laughs>